This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, My name is Matthew Hayes, one of the hosts of this channel. Uh, Today, I'm joined by Rebecca Copeland and Linda Ehrlich to chat about their new co-edited and co-written book titled Yamamba in search of the Japanese mountain witch, uh, which is out this year on Stonebridge Press. Uh, This book is a unique collection of scholarly and creative writings surrounding the figure of Yamamba, uh, or the Japanese mountain witch. It traces the contours of historical, uh, theatrical, folkloric, gendered, and imaginary manifestations of this which figure, and does so through 10 chapters. Some of these chapters were contributed by the co-editors themselves, uh, which we'll chat about today, uh, while others were contributed by scholars and writers and performers, uh, all working through some connection to this mysterious figure, Imamba. Readers, I think, will appreciate this interdisciplinary and genre-bending collection of works that pushes us to rethink much of what we think we know about Yamamba, but also, and more generally, about representations of the marginalized female archetype in cultural imaginations worldwide. Uh, Rebecca and Linda, welcome to the show, and thank you very, very much for joining me today. Thank you. you. Uh, I wonder if we could uh, just begin here by having each of you uh, introduce yourself and uh, talk a little bit about what you do, uh, how you became interested in Japanese studies as a discipline, and how you arrived to where you are uh, now, if that's okay. Hi, I'll start. I'm Linda Ehrlich. I'm a visiting faculty member at Duke University here in Durham, and also Associate Professor Emerita from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And I write about Japanese film and about Japanese traditional theater. My PhD is actually from University of Hawaii and the East-West Center, where I did a lot of Asian theater. And I've 
been a guest speaker for the Theater No Gaku, which is a, a uh, troupe based in the U.S. with members from Japan and, and England as well. And I'm also a published poet. I'm, you know, was very intrigued by this topic. Rebecca actually had approached me about it, and I'm very happy to be part of it. Well, I'm uh, Rebecca Copeland, and I'm very uh, delighted to be joining you, Matthew and Linda, for this discussion. I, um, I'm a professor of Japanese literature at Washington University in St. Louis, and my um, research primarily focuses on women, Japanese women writers of the modern era. I also translate and have translated the works of um, Kirino Natsuo and um, Uno Chio. And more recently, I've been delving into creative writing myself and have recently published um, The Kimono Tattoo, um, a mystery novel with Brother Mockingbird Press. This um, venture with, with Linda has also been one that has, as you noted in, in the introduction, combined uh, creative energies with academic. So this is um, really down my, my new alley, I guess. And I, I got interested in Japanese literature just sort of by accident, I guess. I, I, I was born in Japan, but uh, within months of my birth, or actually weeks of my birth, was my parents relocated to North Carolina, actually not too far from where y'all are. Uh, I grew up in Wake Forest, the little town of Wake Forest, and was just very lucky to have had the opportunity to go back to Japan with, when I was a junior in college on a study abroad. And prior to that, I hadn't really paid much attention to Japan other than trying to um, figure out how to spell Fukuoka when I had to write my birthplace on uh, school applications and things like that. Um, but being being in Japan when I was in my early 20s was just so transforming. And after that first year, I decided I just have to study more about Japan. And I, I went to graduate school and intended to get an MA. And the next thing I know, I was working towards a PhD and then ended up in academic um, uh, as a professor. So it just, it just sort of evolved. <laughs> it's funny how those things tend to snowball uh, quite naturally sometimes. Right. Thank you very much for those, uh, for those introductions. Um, I, I think, you know, before turning to to your book, I, I wonder if you could help listeners understand uh, more about this figure, Yamamba, uh, before we really get into the details. And, and I think one of the one of the patterns I noticed throughout the the writing here is that this figure is difficult to describe uh, in a very clean and neat and categorical way. I think that's one of the compelling qualities, uh, actually, of this this figure. Um, but as, as co-editors of this book, you know, I wonder if you could try to describe or define uh, Yamamba for our listeners as best you can so that they have uh, some idea of the maybe qualities or attributes and representations uh, of the Japanese mountain witch, if that's okay. Well, as you said, it's very difficult to define. I think describe might be easier. Uh, Yamamba is an old woman in the mountains. Those two qualities are essential. She's awesome. In Japanese, I would say ikameshi. She's majestic like the mountains. Um, she can be helpful. 
She can be a figure of pathos, and she can be a grotesque figure and a frightening figure. I was recently speaking to a Japanese woman in her 90s who's lived in Tennessee most of her life, adult life. And when I mentioned Yamamba, she said she's frightening. We all thought when we were little that she was frightening. Um, Yamamba is a figure of folklore, of mythology, and as you pointed out, of theater, both no and kabuki. And as our book shows, she's still relevant to contemporary times in many new guises. Yeah, so I'll just jump yeah, in. Uh, and, and, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, Rebecca, if you would like to add to that, please go ahead. Oh, sure. Um, to sort of continue what, uh, where Linda was going with the, the contemporary, um, I think contemporary Japanese women writers began to appropriate the Yamamba image, this, the, the awesomeness of her and the, and the powerfulness of the Yamamba, but also the sense of ostracism that we find in the Yamamba, the, the, the sense of sort of being chased away into the mountains and, and the notion that powerful, creative women are somehow aberrant and fearsome. And so I think contemporary women or contemporary artists have found in this image a sense of identification um, and that has fueled their creativity. And I think that's one of the directions that uh, Linda and I were heading in with this collection. Great. Yeah. Again, I I think it's helpful to have at least some image and some uh, kind of baseline understanding of who this uh, figure is or perhaps what this uh, figure is and, and some of the ways that I think it plays out. Uh, for folks in their own uh, mind and imagination. And, and frightening certainly is one, one of the uh, qualities that I actually found uh, to be quite present in the book uh, throughout. So I'm glad glad to hear that was the same uh, for you, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to turn uh, to the book uh, now, if I could, uh, which I find, uh, as I was describing um, a little bit earlier, you know, very daring and, and dynamic and and. Um, uh, uh, entertaining uh, in, in some portions and, and very, very fun to read, in fact. So um, there, were, there were many moments during my reading experience that I, I wondered about how something like this emerged uh, and, and took shape because I think um, it defies a lot of the categorical tendencies we have to genre and to discipline uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Of publishing, and and I consumed this book actually in two sittings, uh, and I found myself kind of propelled along by by a real curiosity about what would come uh, in the next chapter, and how Yamamba would be portrayed differently, right, uh, from the chapter I was I was currently reading. So perhaps you could describe for our listeners, you know, a little bit about what this book uh, is, how you conceived of it, uh, how it came together. Um, maybe how you selected some of the contributing authors and, and really what it sets out to, to do uh, in your mind. <laughs> well, that's, that's great to hear about your reading experience, Matthew. That's, that's, that's really wonderful. Um, I wish I could say in, in my memory that we sat down and had mapped out a very, very clear plan. I, the book just evolved uh, I'm very comfortable with this mixture of the scholarly and the so-called creative, although I think scholarship, of course, is also creative. And uh, Rebecca is really fearless, I think. And um, we, we just did it. Um, now, in terms of um, finding the other people, 
That also evolved. I mean, I remembered that one of our contributors, Ann Sheriff, who is a professor at Oberlin University, her host family in Japan, when she was a foreign student there, are uh, mother and daughter, no performers, professional, no performers. So I thought about contacting her, and she came up with this wonderful interview of her host mother and host sister. And then we also started to realize that we needed an introduction that was, you know, informative background material. So it just kind of, as we... As we experienced needs, we looked for people to write, and uh, we spoke to people about it. it. I just really can't remember the process too well anymore. There was it was a long process. It didn't happen overnight. We had a lot of discussions. I think we worked together really well. I appreciated that, and um, and then we you know we put the book out. And I think at some point we'll talk about reception. But I was quite uh, apprehensive about the reception of this book, but I was wrong. It was, we've really gotten great reviews. <laughs> if I may, um, uh, I, I like the way Linda has sort of characterized the book as, as just evolving. There's a, there's a line in the, the no play Yamamba, and I, I can't remember it very well, so I'll just sort of paraphrase Linda may able may be able to add more detail, but the Yamamba herself is described as sort of um, emerging out of the earth or the, the, the nature of the mountain, um, just kind of evolving. And I see that as um, analogous to our process as well. We had a seed, we had an idea, and it just began to grow. Um, and in the end became this book. Both Linda and I have long been interested in the the image the iconography of the yamamba and um we were both working on yamamba things simultaneously and it's a it's interesting that we found each other i mean we already knew each other um uh, by name but we found each other on facebook okay i mean we we want to always i mean facebook is getting some bad rap but um it does provide some interesting um, uh, conduits between people. So Linda was working on some a Yamamba project, her poem, and I, I was working on a sort of personal um, uh, art project. And I posted my thing, Linda posted her thing. And, and so we decided, hey, let's, <laughs> let's put our Yamamba energies together and um, do something more with this. And and uh, at the same time, a, a Japanese uh, choreographer named uh, Yasuko Yokoshi, who appears in the book, was working on a, a choreography that uh, involved the Yamamba. And so she reached out to me, um, having come across an article I'd written that dealt with Yamamba. And, you know, it just sort of grew from there. Um, I knew some people that I wanted to include. Of course, Mizuta Noriko has, um, a, a, you know, a, a renowned Japanese feminist of um, literature has, and, and, and a poet herself. She has done a lot of work on Yamamba and also has translated the, the um, short story that we included by Oba Minako, who was one of these writers who appropriated the Yamamba image. So it just grew together. It was wonderful. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think we both were very moved by the Oba Minako story. I have taught it in a class on Japanese women writers. And that became kind of a touchstone for us. And also for me, the, the no play by Zayami. And then I felt strongly that we needed some images, but I didn't want any you know, I don't know. There was a certain kind of image I did not want. And I was fortunate that I remembered actually a woman who was my former student and then has gone on to be a very promising young artist in Cleveland. And she did a lot of the images for the mm-hmm. book, as well as the, the photographs that uh, that Anne Sheriff's subjects and, um, and the contemporary dancer contributed. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, uh, Linda, what types of in- images you were trying to avoid? I, I, I find I find the cover the cover of this book actually I find particularly attractive. I think it's a very uh-huh. uh, interesting uh, uh, kind of juxtaposition between the, the sort of photographic uh, forested trees and and the kind of you know loose uh, sketch uh, kind of semi opaque uh, behind. Mm-hmm. You know, it, of course, there are images throughout the book as well. But uh, what, what were you trying to avoid, if I could ask? Well, the cover image and these what we call kind of the interlude images are by Maria Alalovic who is this young artist. And the design is very nice. It's done by Stonebridge Press, and I was very pleased by their design work. I mean, the images I wanted to avoid reflect more my taste. It's not that there was anything right or wrong with them, but I I don't like the kind of sensationalized, uh, sexualized images that sometimes we see. And I I honestly don't like the word witch, but I knew that it, it was unavoidable. That's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, he- hearing how this project came together, I- again, sort of looking at the table of contents and-, and looking at all of the pieces hanging together. I mean, it's very clear that there were many, many moving parts uh, at any given time as this project came together. So it's amazing to hear uh, how it developed uh, uh, quite naturally, at least uh, it sounds like. Um, great. So, you know, one of the things I, I find so um, compelling about this book is how the themes very gradually and subtly reveal themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I think the chapters that each of the authors have contributed here are, uh, of course, very distinct from one another. And yet there are very clear through lines that bring these chapters together uh, in impactful and, and I think very dramatic ways. I, you know, looking back to my, to my notes here that I was taking while I was uh, reading, I see things like uh, geography and access gender, interstitial identity, rural peripheries, bodies, physicality, right? All these kind of notes. And um, I, I just think as a, as a site of investigation, uh, Yamamba offers such a rich opportunity to unearth uh, kind of tensions and uh, ruptures, not only in the Japanese cultural imagination, but also, I, I would say, kind of more universally in any given uh, human culture. And this, this kind of simultaneous depth and and breadth uh, through which these themes emerge, I just found to be really captivating. And so I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about what themes and motifs you sought to surface uh, very deliberately through these chapters that, um, you know, again, they're, they're very unique in and of themselves, but they all seem to be kind of pointed to at least a common set of ideas uh, surrounding this figure. That's 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 a fascinating comment. One thing I wanted to mention, because I'm going to fudge this a bit, because I'm not sure I know about the connecting themes um, beyond what I've already said, but we did consider this universal aspect, you know, because there are Yamamba-like figures in Ireland, for example, in Eastern Europe, and we decided not to go there. 
we decided to leave that out, but there was enough just within the Japanese context. And um, we certainly, as I mentioned, wanted to get some of the informative uh, materials at the beginning and also the more the classical materials like about the no play. We wanted to alternate chapters that were poetry and chapters that were narrative. And we did want to end with the most contemporary chapter that we had, which is the uh, the one on the contemporary dancer. Beyond that, I think it's a very poetic book. And uh, we did not sit down and map out, in my mind at least, certain themes to highlight. There's no, there's nothing like that. Uh, so if you're able to pull that out, that is fantastic, you know. And if and if someone is just also enjoying the variety of writings, I think that's also fine because again, we're not trying to make any set definition here. A big question was the glossary and the bibliography. We can talk about that later. <laughs> so um, I think our touchstone was creativity and um, trying to produce a, a book that introduced a, a difficult topic. Um, as we've already discussed, the Yamamba is a topic that is almost impossible to define. So how do you define that? And uh, how do you de- approach such a topic? And we felt that through creativity, one can learn a lot more or, or differently, perhaps, than um, through a straight academic um, um, scholarly approach. But we needed, I mean, we needed Nordico Reader's introduction. We needed some way to um, set the, the story for readers who weren't familiar with Yamamba, or even for readers who are familiar with Yamamba, Nordico brings forward a, a lot of information that, that I hadn't been aware of. So I think we were looking for different um, approaches to a, a creative uh, um, discourse on the Yamamba. So uh, as Linda pointed out, there was um, the theatrical, um, there's the poetic, um, and uh, uh, also the narrative. And there were, I mean, there were other, there, there was the artistic, there were other um, forms that we would have preferred to have included, but we just um, were limited by, uh, I guess, the, the frame of the book and, and what, we could, what we could offer. Um, so it, I, think, I think probably we each carried with us a, an, a notion of what we wanted to see with the Yamamba. And as Linda has um, sort of implied, we, she and I don't always have the same image of, of Yamamba. And so I think we both were bringing forward um, the, the kind of Yamamba story we wanted to to share. And, and that might be why the, the book is so rich with, with these different thematics that you found, Matthew. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think um, what was one thing that was very important to me was engaging the reader and providing some surprises. Now, I was surprised by Laura Miller's retablo, you know, bringing in the Hispanic culture there. So that's what, you know, one thing I was looking for was this kind of variety in style, in tone, um, but with, of course, the central focus still the same. Yamamba in the Blue Ridge Mountains, you know, for example, Rebecca's <laughs> wonderful story. These are all surprises, and I think that that makes the book quite engaging. In fact, we 
that was the question about the glossary. You know, how how scholarly do we make some of these? Yeah, I, I think that's a very that's a very important and, and I think subtle point. This idea that uh, of sort of creative approaches or creative writing or um, you know kind of you know what we might think of as non scholarly or non traditional approaches to a given uh, topic or subject can still impart quite a bit of information. And, and I found myself stepping away from this book feeling as though I had just consumed a scholarly work uh, in the sense that I felt like I had learned quite a bit, right? I had a very, very uh, kind of comprehensive sense of this figure um, and some of some of its, its kind of, you know, representations and manifestations. And yet all of that came through uh, what is otherwise a very creative and I think very uh, sort of non-traditional uh, approach to a topic. So, yeah, I think that's an important point uh, uh, to make. Um, I do want to turn uh, maybe more narrowly here to some of the content. Uh, this is a co-edited volume, obviously, and we don't have the other uh, authors here to chat about their contribution. So I, I'd rather not sort of speak for them and their own writing, but I, I do want to chat to you both about uh, your contributions uh, to this book. And perhaps we could start with uh, the, the preface. I, I just want to pick up on one brief mention of how you distinguish your book from uh, others on a given topic or figure, and describe how your book is not about Yamamba, but for Yamamba. And I, I have to say that many of the contributions here really did feel like a kind of homage uh, rather than a, you know, a kind of distanced uh, description or something like this. And so uh, many of the contributions focus on, you know, this kind of interactive nature between the author and Yamamba, right? They are very, they're very personal, I think, contributions here, or at least they came across to me uh, that way. So I'm wondering if you can just expand on that idea for uh, listeners, you know, how is this book for this figure rather than about this figure? And why was that important for you to uh, preface uh, this work with that idea. Rebecca, that was your phrase. Would you like to start? Okay, yeah. sure. A very good <laughs> phrase. But um, So the preface, I mean, I think the preface was our opportunity to try to alert readers to the fact that this is not an academic book. Both Linda and I have um, really identified ourselves as academics. And uh, People who know us will see the book and think that this is a, a, um, an introduction to um, perhaps the way the Yamamba has figured in, in art and literature throughout the ages. And we, we just wanted to let people know from the very beginning, um, this is a creative enterprise. And the, the preface was very fun to write because um, Linda and I have never met. <laughs> oh, really? We were wow. um, writing this preface back and forth by sharing drafts on on email, and um, so so much of what's going on is, is intuitive and inspired, and and in a way, this whole enterprise was done because Yamamba has inspired us. So this is our, in a way, giving back to this concept Yamamba. Mm -hmm. Um, this image, Yamamba, and, and all that that has represented down through the ages. And for me, Yamamba has represented the, the pain that women have endured um, because of their, their 
power, their creativity, and their uh, enforced silence in many cases. So this is our giving back to that struggle in, mm-hmm. it, for me. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. It's an offering of thanks for the, for the example of strength that will continue hopefully forever and uh, strength of, of women, of older women who are often ignored. For myself, too, it was a wonderful collaboration. One thing I didn't mention in my introduction was that I first went to Japan when I was 16 as a foreign student, American Field Service foreign student, and I was in Shikoku, and I knew very little Japanese. And uh, my host sister is actually the one who did the Japanese translation of my poem that's in this book. We had lost touch for many years and then reconnected and... And uh, she also did the calligraphy that's on the back mm-hmm. cover. And she is a wonderful reciter of poetry in public. And she has recited the poem in English and Japanese in, to large audiences in Japan. So that's been a very exciting aspect of collaboration for me, thanks to this book. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, I'm, I'm very happy you brought up this, this issue of um, translation, uh, uh, Linda. I, I know a couple of times you've mentioned, uh, and Rebecca has also mentioned, this sort of universality uh, running through this uh, book. And I think there's a real kind of transnational uh, quality as well to many of these uh, chapters. And I think an, another signal to this kind of maybe transnational importance of a work like this is some of these linguistic qualities uh, that run throughout the book. And I think, um, you know, one chapter is a translation from Japanese to English, uh, though the original, I think, Japanese is is alighted in that text. And there's another chapter, uh, Linda, your poetic contribution, Yamamba's Mountains, which moves from English to Japanese, right? And there, both languages appear uh, side by side. And, and, you know, beyond these two chapters, I, I felt a very intentional effort to incorporate quite a lot of Japanese into much of this text, right? Especially in the translations, I think, of the interview portions that appear uh, elsewhere. So, um, Linda, I I think our Japanese studies listeners would really appreciate hearing about how linguistic conventions and uh, 
uh, considerations shaped your own poetic work in that uh, chapter, and, and maybe more generally about how these considerations help to inform the content throughout the rest of the book, and, and maybe even widen the scope of accessibility for, for readers. Well, my poem was conceived as a poem in English, but very, very influenced by the no play. In fact, a few of the phrases are from a translation of the no play, but of course, you know, changed into a different form. And I worked closely with uh, with Kayo uh, on the translation. We went back and forth by email a great deal about that. Uh, Anne Sheriff is a magnificent translator, and and yet we... I wanted to have a few more of the original phrases put into the English translation, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And that's when we had to start to think about a glossary. You know, and who is the glossary for? Well, we're expecting a wide readership, not just specialists. So the glossary is really not for specialists, but it could be useful for specialists as well. What to include, what not to include. We, Rebecca and I had some really interesting discussions on that where she was much more knowledgeable about some of these contemporary phrases than I was. I'm going, oh, that has to be in the glossary. No, 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 that's, you know, that's <laughs> on all the time now. So, you know, um, but I like to have original phrases put in, even if the readers can't, you know, understand them. Yeah. Just make a guess at them uh, when they're when they're necessary. You know, I mean, I, I read things in other languages um, that have been translated, and you know, maybe I don't know Czech, or maybe I, I don't know um, Ukrainian or something like that. But mm-hmm. still, it's good if if there's a word that is very hard to translate, then I think it should you make a stab at it in English, but mm-hmm. then you put the original in the parentheses as well. Did your, um, did your press have any perspective or, or give any insight on your inclusion of, you know, what is otherwise a, a very comprehensive collection of Japanese terms and vocabulary, especially in the glossary as well? I mean, was there any well, uh, back and forth there? Oh, yes. There? I, ha- yeah. I have to say Stonebridge was amazing. I mean, the, the copy editing they did was really superb. It showed their deep knowledge of, of Japanese language and Japanese culture. They did not actually want uh, the the Japanese in the book. I had to insist that Kayo's uh, translation be put in or else we would have put in more. Uh, we had a lot of discussion on the romanization of Yamamba. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Right, because um, the uh, the Yamamba with the the second M is an old-fashioned uh, romanization that's no longer current. So it would have been more uh, contemporary to have had the Yamanba with the N, mm. Yamamba. Um, so that there was some discussion with the press as to whether our astute readers would think we'd made a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) But for both of us, um, we came to our love of this character, this figure, um, through the old romanization, Yamamba, and it just felt right to have Mm -hmm. it that way. And this, there's a third one as well, right? Uh, Yama, Yama, uh, Yama Uba. Uba. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's interesting. I, I believe, uh, I certainly could be wrong about this, but I believe uh, Noriko Reader has a, a book due out this year that uses that uh, rendering. of. Yes, uh, it's come out um, for the oh, okay. Utah um, State University Press, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a very comprehensive study of of. Of Yamamba and the derivation, the the history of 
of the uh, Yamamba. And she gives just a glimmer of that in her introduction, right? Uh, so her book is is com- very, very comprehensive. And again, because of scholars like like Noriko, reader, we don't we don't have we didn't have to give an academic overview, uh, you know, an overly academic book. That's already been done. So this allowed us the freedom of being more uh, innovative and playful. <laughs> right, and and her chapter does have what ended up being endnotes, although most of the others don't. I have to say that with romanization, it's it's such a tricky thing. I mean, I, I write about Koreeda, the Japanese director, and of course his first film, first full-length feature film is Mabaroshi, but he wanted it spelled M-A-B-O, Mabaro, am I doing this right? M-A-B-O-R-O-S-I, not S-H-I, but... So recently I, I talked to a cinematographer here in Durham and he's talking about Maba Rossi, you know, and I thought, well, you know, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I think this, this sort of linguistic uh, ambiguity here with Yamamba, I mean, just, just adds to this overall uh, kind of amorphous uh, uh, quality or, or characterization of this figure. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca, I, I want to ask you also about your chapter, if I could, which is uh, titled Blue Ridge Yamamba. Um, having, I mean, having just moved to the American South myself only two months ago, I, I found your treatment here of the Blue Ridge uh, Mountains to be uh, actually quite haunting <laughs> and frightening. Um, and there are, uh, again, very obvious and clear ties uh, throughout your chapter, and I would argue as well uh, throughout the rest of the book, uh, to geographies, uh, you, you know, actual and, and imagined. I think. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you see uh, geography fitting in with this kind of lore surrounding uh, Yamamba, either in your chapter or. Right. Yes. Thank you. So um, I have spent a lot of time in the Blue Ridge and hope to return permanently to the Blue Ridge uh, eventually. There, there's something that there's something powerful that emanates from the mountains. And um, I think this is, again, a universal understanding that mountains signal, uh, as, as uh, Linda said, majesty, but also magic. And um, everything in the mountains is changeable, right? The, uh, the weather will change at the drop of a hat. Um, uh, the seasons are notably um, changeable in the mountains. So there's always a sense of of wonder and power and uncertainty uh, and danger uh, um, in in the mountains, but a a danger that is very natural. And so spending time in the mountains and, and also spending time in Japan, when I'm in Japan in the mountains and when I'm in North Carolina in the Blue Ridge, it, I could be either place. You know, when you're in the mountains, you you don't necessarily see um, nationality. <laughs> you know, you, the trees might be a little different, but there's something about the mist that that um, um, occludes this sense of being in a particular country. So, with that as a with with that in mind, and having read Oba Minako's Smile of a Mountain Witch. I began to feel that um, the Yamamba is not a character that is limited to any particular place or time. The Yamamba is timeless, 
And the Yamamba is really um, part of, of whoever is encountering her. <laughs> um, and so let me back up and say, I, I recently taught the story, The Smile of a Mountain Witch in, in my class um, here at Washington University. And as we're reading the story, my students were saying, but is she real? Is she really a Yamamba? Uh, the story is about a, a woman who um, presents herself as as a Yamamba, and we we learn of her girlhood and how she has to sort of suppress her magic uh, so that she can be acceptable for society. And I'm I'm trying to express to the students that perhaps all women who have had to suppress their magic um, are potentially Yamamba, and. Since um, understanding that, I, I thought of trying to write a story that <clears throat> depicted a, an American woman encountering her own Yamamba <laughs> in the Blue Ridge. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, that's amazing. And, and I think so many of these chapters uh, uh, deal with natural phenomena in, in such an upfront and, and dramatic way that it's really, really difficult to... Uh, distinguish this figure from her natural surroundings, right? Whether they are mountains or uh, forest or uh, in the case of some of these chapters, right? Urban environments and, and things like this. So yeah, the, there is a, a real kind of universality, I think, to this um, terrain and geography, but also the kind of atmospheric uh, um, seasons and, and sort of natural, the other kind of natural phenomena that occur uh, in these these spaces. So yeah, very, very interesting to hear about that. Uh, Linda, is there anything you'd like to add there just on this issue of geography uh, running well, throughout the book? I, I was just thinking about uh, Kurosawa's film Dreams, which of course has some good sequences and some that aren't so great, but there is the Yuki Onna sequence, you know, the snow woman. And, and um, in that sequence, she starts out being sort of nice, but then becomes really, really terrifying, which is a snowstorm that's going to kill the all the men who are hiking. Um, I think Yamamba is more complex than that depiction, in fact. So I, what Rebecca just said was beautiful. I agree with it completely. Um, and once I started working on this book, I started to see many of these themes in different geographical places. And, then, of course, in David Holloway's um, story, the Yamamba <laughs> um is a little more terrifying. Mm, right. Uh, won't give anything away, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think in our book as well, we have um, the Yamamba as uh, nurturer, the Yamamba as teacher, um, the Yamamba okay. as vulnerable, um, the Yamamba who suffers, and and the Yamamba who's ferocious and mm. who mets out um, judgment. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a, a sort of parallel there, I would say, to the, again, the, the sort of terrains and environments and uh, outdoor natural spaces that punctuate this work. Uh, and as you just described, the, the range of qualities and temperaments and dispositions of this figure, right? Both of those, I think, are, are varied uh, uh, equally. And I think she's very tied to seasonal changes as well. Mm. In my poem, I tried to get this sense of a cyclic uh, of cycles, 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. she she emerges from the darkness and she goes back into the darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that adds a different temporal aspect, which of course is the aspect of the mountains. Uh, perhaps we could turn uh, now to uh, reception. Uh, this is something that uh, was mentioned just uh, briefly or earlier in our conversation. I just want to turn to audience here and, and how you envisioned it, uh, if at all, uh, from from the start. I, uh, I think, again, one of the compelling qualities of this book is uh, really the way it seems to cut across so many disciplinary uh, boundaries uh, and as I read, I, I imagined the, the the range of students and researchers um, uh, working in, in so many subdisciplines within Japanese studies, uh, getting so much out of this this book. It, it really brings together, as we've said here many times, uh, historical writing, uh, creative writing, ethnographic writing. Uh, and others, and, and I think these emerge in contexts, uh, you know, certainly not limited to uh, things like folklore studies, uh, performance studies, gender studies, cultural studies, right, and even art and and geography, as we just uh, described in in some of, some of these other contexts. So, uh, if I could just ask you uh, both, you know, who is this book for, and mm-hmm. and how do you imagine it being consumed, and and in what context? Well, you know, as a writer, I I tend to just want to do the writing or the editing, you know, the compiling, the curating, and then you think about the audience. But if you, I don't know, I'm not the kind of person who writes just for a certain audience. But I was apprehensive. There's no doubt about it. I felt a lot like the Spanish director Luis Buñuel when he first showed um, an Andalusian dog, his most experimental film, and he. He put rocks in his pocket just in case he'd have to stone the audience. That they would be in a riot. <laughs> um, and so I was really, I'll have to say, shocked by the response from very well-known scholars, from people who work more in pop culture. We just got a great review in the Yale News um, all over the place. So I'm, I'm still in a state of surprise. Well, I think... Um, uh... I agree with with Linda that uh, we just you know we 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 write and we create and then um, we don't necessarily think about the audience. But when we were seeking a publisher, I think we did have an audience in mind. Um, we didn't want to go with the traditional academic press because we just didn't think this book was um, that's not who we who it was meant for. So we were very delighted when Stonebridge press um, was so open-minded about uh, the book. And, and we, we contacted them uh, while the book was in progress. So we didn't have the complete volume. Uh, um, and I think Stonebridge has an audience that's much more eclectic that uh, reaches beyond the, the classroom. And we, I, I was hoping that we'd have people who don't necessarily know about Japan um, who are interested in poetry, who are interested in um, folklore, as you say, but not necessarily for uh, teaching or academic purposes, um, who just want to to read and learn something that touches them. And um, But I, I also can see that this book would have utility in the classroom 
um, Linda, uh, uh, Linda's poetry combined with uh, Ann Sheriff's um, interview are just would be wonderful for people who are working on uh, Japanese theater or performance. Um, and um, Laura Miller's um, essay uh, nods towards uh, contemporary fashion and contemporary behavior um, among young women in Japan. So I think there's something in there for, for, for everybody. For me, I want my students to be able to read the book and think, I can also express myself creatively. So many students feel stymied by the the genre of academic writing. I, you know, I don't I don't know how to write well, and so forth and so on. And I think if they had more samples of or more models for alternative ways of of sharing their knowledge, they might do better. <laughs> so hopefully this book will also um, spark some creativity amongst our students. Absolutely. So, and, um, you know, with any book, there comes a certain point where you just have to wrap it up. And that's what we did. But we can imagine other other kinds of essays, other kinds of poems, uh, short stories. So this is what I hope is a strong beginning Um um, maybe not always about Yamamba, but about any subject matter. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to hear. I, I, uh, I, I mean, again, in, in my reading experience, it, it was very difficult for me um, uh, not to imagine the utility of this book in, in the classroom. I mean, I, I, I taught a class myself last year on Japanese folklore. In fact, I used parts of dreams, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> in the classroom. But I mean, th- this book would have fit in in so many ways, uh, I think, uh, in a class like that and, and certainly other classes. Um, it's interesting to hear that you, uh, sounds like, you know, very intentionally avoided a- an academic press for your own uh, uh, reasons. Um, and yet it was quite well received and continues to be quite well received within um you know, what we might call very traditional, squarely mm-hmm. academic forums right. and, and contexts. So uh, it sounds like maybe you were surprised a bit by that. And I wonder, do you think that says anything about some of the changing perspectives within the academy about things like genre and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, interdisciplinarity and, and the way it sort of manifests in works like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I think that there is, um, you know, um, much more emphasis now on crossing boundaries on interdisciplinarity and on um, alternative tracks in academia, you know, so that we're not just um, focused on erudite um, performance, but on new, I think, new avenues to knowledge production. And I, I see this, I hope this book will open more doors, as Linda said, to other ways of approaching uh, academic topics. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, there comes a point with, with writing, I feel that if you want to do it, you just do it, you know, and you just, and it's very important to find a good home for it. And Stonebridge Press was a very good home for it. Um, other books will, will have other kinds of homes, but if you're always worrying about does it fit into this box or that box, it will never be good writing. Well, I mean, I have to say I, I, I would not have done this if I didn't have tenure. 
So um, <laughs> you know, it, it was if I if I had been an untenured professor, this would have been this would have been a risk. And you know, how would it count? And where would I put it on my CV? And uh, so. Um, I have, I feel like Linda and I have the luxury of not needing to worry about that. <laughs> That's very, very interesting to hear. I mean, well, it, clearly the risk has, has paid off. But, uh, and I think uh, this book is being uh, very well appreciated by uh, quite a range and, and spectrum of, of folks on, on either side of the academic uh, divide. Um, we are uh, just about out of uh, time here. This has been a, a very, very wonderful and, and interesting conversation. I, I, maybe before we say goodbye, perhaps... Uh, you could tell uh, our listeners a little bit about what you're working on uh, now or, or maybe what you might have planned uh, for future projects. I think you alluded to this sort of in the context of, of Imamba, but yeah, please feel free to, to let us know what else you're working on. Hmm. Well, I've, I've just finished doing an awful lot of work about Cordieta, including an, an essay that just came out about his so-called French film, The Truth. And uh, I want to put together a collection of lyric essays uh, new writing and also some selected writing, and I don't have any home for it. So I'm kind of just, you know, moving away from the shore a bit with this one. What I want to do. Yeah. Well, I'm. Uh, I still have my feet in one foot in the academic world and one foot in um, creative writing. So I have. I, I'm working on promoting the kimono tattoo that the novel mystery novel that's set it's set in uh, contemporary Kyoto um, but I'm also working on a handbook of modern and contemporary Japanese women writers I'll be the the curator of the handbook um, the editor and there will be about 20 or so chapters of um, different aspects of of Japanese women's writing. I I think it's going to be very exciting. That should come out in a few years, so that'll be a while. And I'm still very interested in Uno Chio. That's the the Japanese writer that I wrote my dissertation on. Um, I'm hoping to try to put together a a book about her called Bad Girls of Good Housekeeping (laughs) because she was was a bit scandalous uh, never could stay married, and yet was constantly being asked for advice from married women on how to keep their husbands. Or uh, she she wrote cookbooks, and of course she was a famous kimono designer. So I see her as a good housekeeper, but maybe not a good wife. <laughs> That's fascinating. And uh, one of the essays I want to write is about the Seto Naikai, the Japan Inland Sea because that ties back to my first time in Japan when I went across it at dusk, uh, when I, I knew almost no Japanese. And so I'd like to revisit it. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'd like to revisit the Seto Naikai and also respond to another book that's a Stonebridge Press book by Donald Ritchie, which is about the Inland Sea. Mm-hmm. And it, Donald was a mentor of mine. So yeah, I think I'm at a point in my life where I'm trying to weave different aspects together like this. Great. And uh, very nice to see you still uh, interacting with your, your press in that way. I mean, that's, that's a nice to sort of keep it in the family. <laughs> um, wonderful. Well, uh, I, I think uh, certainly for me, and I suspect our listeners uh, as well, I think we'll all uh, look forward to uh, those projects you've just listed there. And that sounds like very exciting work uh, you both have planned for the future. Um, Thank you. 
Rebecca and Linda, this has been an absolute pleasure for me. I just want to thank you both very, very much for taking the time out to speak to our listeners about this wonderful and uh, very exciting and dynamic contribution to uh, not just the field of Japanese studies, but I would say, as I think has been made clear here, uh, several fields and subfields. Uh, again, the book is titled Yamamba, In Search of the Japanese Mountain Witch. It is out now on Stonebridge uh, press, and I'm sure other readers will be as uh, enthralled and surprised as I was, and, and maybe even a little uh, frightened uh, along the way. <laughs> along the way. So, thank you very much for your, your time, both of you. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you for so your much. careful reading. This has All been right. delightful. <laughs> Great. My pleasure. Thank you. Take good care. <laughs>